Abbott security, his incompetence had eroded much of what it took his grandfather 40 years to build. An Abbott security guard, convicted of three DUIs that a simple background check would have revealed, had sat drunk at the security desk in the lobby of a San Francisco high-rise. Half asleep, the guard never stopped Carl Sandel for identification, allowing the twice-convicted sex offender access to the building elevators. Sandel prowled the hallways late that night, until he found Emily Scott alone in her law office. There, he viciously beat, raped, and strangled her. A year to the day after that tragedy, Scott's husband and six-year-old son had filed a wrongful death civil suit against Abbott Security, seeking six million dollars in damages. Sloan had urged Abbott to settle the case, especially after pre-trial discovery revealed a number of failed background checks on other security guards, but Abbott refused, calling Brian Scott an opportunistic whore. From the corner of his eye, Sloan watched Steiner acknowledge the juror's gaze with a nearly imperceptible nod of the head. Though too much of a professional to smile, Steiner gently closed his binder and slid it into a trial bag, creased and nicked with the scars of a thirty-year career. Steiner's job was finished, and both he and Sloan knew it. Abbott Security had lost on both the evidence and the law, and for no other reason than that its CEO was an arrogant ass who had ignored all of Sloan's advice, including his pre-trial admonitions against wearing $2,000 hand-tailored suits into a sweltering courtroom of blue-collar jurors just looking to find a reason to give away his grandfather's money. From her perch beneath the large gold seal of the state of California, Superior Court Judge Sandra Brown set aside a stack of papers and wiped her brow with the handkerchief hidden in the sleeve of her black robe. The elaborate climate control system in the recently constructed state-of-the-art courthouse had crashed under the weight of a week-long heat wave gripping the city, causing a pack of maintenance men to scurry through the hallways, lugging bright orange extension cords and portable fans. In an act of mercy, Judge Brown had taken a ten-minute recess after Steiner's closing argument. To Sloan, it felt like a temporary reprieve from the governor. That reprieve was about to be rescinded. Mr. Sloan, you may give your closing. Sloan acknowledged Judge Brown, then briefly reconsidered the scrawled blue ink on his yellow legal pad. It was all an act. His closing argument wasn't on the pad. Following Steiner's summation, Sloan had slipped his own closing into his briefcase. He had nothing to rebut Steiner's emphatic appeal and horrific description of the last moments of Emily Scott's life, or the security guard's wanton negligence. He had nothing with which to blow the son of a bitch out of the water. His mind was blank. Behind him, the spectators sitting in the gallery continued to fan the air like a summer congregation in the pews of a Southern Baptist church, a blur of oscillating white sheets of paper. The persistent drone of the portable fans sounded like a swarm of invisible insects. Sloan pushed back his chair and stood. The light flashed, a blinding white that sent a lightning bolt of pain shooting from the base of his skull to a dagger point behind his eyes. He gripped the edge of the table as the now familiar image pulsed in and out of clarity. A woman lying on a dirt floor, her broken body surrounded by a blood-red lake, tributaries forging crimson paths. Struggling not to grimace, Sloan forced the image back into the darkness and pried open his eyes. 
Judge Brown rocked in her chair with a rhythmic creaking, as if ticking off the seconds. Steiner, too, remained indifferent. In the front row of the gallery, Patricia Hansen, Emily Scott's mother, sat between her two surviving daughters, arms interlocked and hands clasped, like protesters at the front of a picket line. For the moment, her steel-blue eyes ignored Sloane, locking instead on the jurors. Sloane willed his six-foot-two frame erect. At a muscled 185 pounds, he was ten pounds lighter than when he'd stood to give his opening statement, but his attire revealed no sign of the mental and physical deterioration inevitable after five weeks of fast-food dinners, insufficient sleep, and persistent stress. He kept a closet full of suits, sized for the weight fluctuations. The jurors would not detect it. He buttoned his jacket and approached the jury, but they now refused to acknowledge him and left him standing at the railing like an unwelcome relative, hoping that if they ignored him long enough, he would just go away. Sloan waited. Around him, the courtroom ticked and creaked, the air ripe with body odor. Juror 4, the accountant from Noe Valley, a copious note-taker throughout the trial, was first. Juror 5, the blonde transit worker, followed. Juror 9, the African-American construction worker, was next to raise his eyes, though his arms remained folded defiantly across his chest. Juror 10 followed Juror 9, who followed Juror 3, then Juror 7. They fell like dominoes, curiosity forcing their chins from their chests until the last of the twelve had raised her head. Sloane's hands opened in front of him and swept slowly to his side, palms raised like a priest greeting his congregation. Foreign at first, the gesture then made sense. He stood before them empty-handed, without props or theatrics. His mouth opened, and he trusted that words would follow, as they always did, stringing themselves together like beads on a necklace, one after another, seamless. This, he said, is everyone's nightmare. His hands folded at his midsection. You're at home, washing the dishes in the kitchen, giving your child a bath, sitting in the den watching the ball game on television. Routine, ordinary tasks you do every day. He paced to his left. Their heads turned. There's a knock at your door. He paused. You dry your hands on a dish towel, tell your son not to turn on the hot water, Walk to the front door with your eyes on the television. He paced to his right, stopped, and made a connection with Juror 7, the middle school teacher from the Sunset District, who he knew would be his client's harshest critic. You open the door. Her Adam's apple bobbed. Two men stand on your porch in drab gray suits, a uniformed officer behind them. They ask for you by your full name, You've seen it too many times on television not to know. She nodded almost imperceptibly. He moved down the row. The tip of the accountant's pen rested motionless on the pad. The construction worker uncrossed his arms. You assume there's been an accident, a car crash. You plead with them to tell you she's all right, but the expressions on their faces, the fact that they are standing on your porch, tell you she is not all right. The white sheets of paper stilled. 
Steiner uncrossed his legs and sat forward with a confused, bewildered expression. Patricia Hansen unclasped her daughter's arms and put a hand on the railing like someone at a wedding who was about to stand and object. Their words are harsh, matter-of-fact, direct. Your wife's been murdered. Your shock turns to disbelief and confusion. You feel a moment of absurd relief. It's a mistake. They're at the wrong house. There's been a mistake, you say. They lower their eyes. We're sorry. There's been no mistake. You step onto your porch. No. Not my wife. Look at my house. Look at my car in the driveway. You point up and down the block at your middle-class neighborhood. Look at my neighbors. Look at my neighborhood. People don't get murdered here. It's why we live here. It's safe. Our children ride their bikes in the street. We sleep with the windows open. No, you plead. There's been a mistake. He paused, sensing it now, seeing it in their hollow eyes, pleading for him to continue, yearning to hear the soothing comfort of his voice, taking in his words like drugs from a syringe. But there hasn't been a mistake. There hasn't been an accident. No. It was a deliberate, calculated act by a sick and depraved sociopath who, on that particular night, at that particular moment, was intent on killing. And there was absolutely nothing anyone could have done to prevent him from doing that. He spread his arms, offering to shelter them from their pain, acknowledging the difficult task that awaited them. I wish the question before you was whether Emily Scott's death was a horrific, senseless...